Hi there. Welcome to episode four of the Clayton Castle podcast. My name is Clayton Castle, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to this very special episode of the podcast. Um, Here in Ohio on June 2nd, we got rid of all the health mandates regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. Governor DeWine lifted the mask mandate, the social distancing mandates, the capacity mandates. And so with all that being said, we are slowly but surely coming out of the pandemic and returning to our normal lives. I don't know about y'all, but I still face a little what I'm calling mask anxiety. And that's where, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I've been fully vaccinated since April, but I was at the mall a couple of days ago. And for some reason, just felt the need to wear a mask, even though I'm fully vaccinated, even though I didn't have to wear a mask. um, I think for a lot of us, we are kind of in this period where we don't know if we should wear a mask. You, You know, even though we don't have to, there are a lot of people who still will continue to because some think it's too early. Some think that um, the vaccination rates have not been high enough. No matter where you stand on that, if you want to wear a mask, feel free to wear a mask. Don't be shamed into it. Don't be ashamed to do it um, because, again, I'm doing it. If you want to go without a mask, feel free. But anyway, so I'm kind of getting off track there. But I wanted to take an introspective look of the past year um, and what it was like to be on the front lines of the pandemic. I'm going to be talking to my stepmother, Pat Castle. She was a registered nurse or is a registered nurse at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center here in Cincinnati. And she worked on the COVID unit for over a year treating patients with COVID-19. And so I will be talking to her about what the past year was like and what we can learn about the pandemic and what she learned about the pandemic and the effect that it had on her as a experienced nurse. So I'll be excited for that conversation. Before we get into that conversation, I do want to make an announcement about the podcast. The biggest piece of feedback that I got from the first few episodes was that it was only on SoundCloud. Nothing wrong with SoundCloud, but that's not where a lot of people get their podcasts. So I have taken the liberty of getting the Clayton Castle podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So you can now find this podcast in three ways on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Just search the Clayton Castle podcast on those to get your fill of the podcast and you can click subscribe or follow or whatever it is on those on those sites so i hope that you enjoy the podcast enjoy finding them on these new platforms and we will continue to tell these stories together i'm excited for this episode and we will be right back with pat castle
Clayton Castle Podcast. I am here with my next guest, a very special person in my life. She is a nurse at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, and she is active in the nurses union here in Cincinnati. But most importantly to me, she is my dad's wife, aka my stepmother. I would like to welcome to the Clayton Castle Podcast, Patricia Pat Castle. Pat, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Alex. I know you like to go by Clayton in your professional <laughs> life, but you're still Alex to me. Well, thank you, I guess. <laughs> I wanted to have you on because I wanted to talk about the pandemic. I wanted to do an episode kind of looking back on the pandemic, what it was like to be in a hospital, in an emergency room, on a COVID unit um, during the pandemic. And you were basically in all of those, at least I know for sure you were on the COVID floor. And so I wanted to kind of get a nurse on and reflect on that and what better than to have my own stepmother on it. But first I want to start with your upbringing. Mm -hmm. uh, you are Canadian. Um, talk a little bit about your upbringing in Canada and what really drove you to want to be a nurse. Well, it's not too long of a story. I guess I can relay it to you here. I grew up in the country, went to Catholic schools. And I think that uh, in my early days, I tried to take care of our pets. We had dogs, we had cats that were only allowed outside. And so one day, the, the one cat was limping. It looked like it had a broken leg. So I thought I would make a, a turning, a, um, oh boy, a sling for its arm. And I put the sling on and it lasted for maybe about five seconds. <laughs> so I thought, oh boy, I guess veterinarian school is not there for me. <laughs> so as the years passed by, I had a cousin who uh, was going to nursing school. And back then, <clears throat> you know, in the 80s, for females, teaching and nursing were primarily the two job areas that women could get into easily. And so I opted for the nursing profession. And I've been in the nursing profession ever since. One of my claims to fame is that I could give IV, Demerol, and morphine, but I couldn't go to a bar and buy a drink of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it all evolved. <laughs> what age were you when you first became a nurse? Because you just because the drinking age up there is 19. Um, yes. So obviously you were not 19 yet. I was able to do those medicines uh, before I graduated. And so I was just 18. <laughs> so you, t you moved to America and you are in hospitals here. I think you first moved to Texas, then you came to Cincinnati. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the Canadian healthcare system and the American healthcare system? Definitely can. When I first realized I was going to be emigrating to the U.S. and to the southern states, I started taking Spanish classes, actually, at the University of Toronto. Um, when I moved to El Paso, Texas, my first uh, employment in nursing there was in uh, critical care or ICU care. Um, so I actually came from the emergency room setting to go to the ICU setting. So I ended up focusing my time on learning ICU nursing. I had to learn different drugs. Uh, in fact, looking back upon it, I wonder how I even got <laughs> through it. My first week of orientation there, I saw a patient with, you know, three chest tubes, a balloon pump, a ventilator, and he had pacer wires. 
as well. And I thought, oh, and don't forget the seven IV pumps. And I looked at that and I thought, what am I getting myself into? But within about a year's time, I was actually put in charge managing a 16-bed unit. So from El Paso, we decided that we wanted to get a little bit closer to home, but not a whole lot closer where we would have visitors like every weekend. So so Cincinnati was the area. Um, So I ended up starting at St. Luke East ICU, which is now St. Elizabeth Fort Thomas. And I spent four years in their ICU and then uh, transferred over to the university emergency department when we were the health alliance. And since then, we have now separated ways with, you know, Christ Hospital, the um, the St. Luke's or now the St. Elizabeth system, Fort Hamilton and Jewish Hospital. Now we're just our own entity with Westchester and Drake. When, so one thing I wanted to ask is there was a video, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago that went viral. It was a Canadian doctor um, testifying in front of the U.S. Congress. And they were they were basically saying, the Congress was, basically grilling her on, well, so you know, socialist medicine, you know, universal health care. And they were basically saying this would never work in America because their biggest argument was that if we went to a universal health care system, the quality of the medicine that we provide would suffer from it. And she said, that's not true. There are a lot of procedures. There are, I forgot the one that she, the example she gave, there was some sort of heart surgery that was actually pioneered in Toronto. So she said, you know, the quality of medicine wouldn't go down. It's just a matter of providing the best care for any patient, not just the ones who can afford it. Um, and that affordability does not equate to quality of medicine. What are your thoughts on um, on that? I was kind of rather surprised with the quality of nursing care and medicine when I first came to the U.S. And I felt at that time very strongly that the Canadian system was actually better. Um, can I say that it's better now? I can't really be a an observer of that since I am not there currently right. within their medical system. Do they have issues with <clears throat> getting surgeries booked, elective surgeries booked? Do they have issues with getting tests and procedures done? That is my understanding that they do. So it's difficult for me to speak on that now, but I do know that when I first moved here <clears throat> in the late 90s, that I felt that our ability to deliver medical care and nursing care was better than what I saw here in the U.S. Okay. Now I want to shift gears to the pandemic just a little bit. So this started back in, well, when did, when did the American healthcare system, when did you and other people at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center start hearing about COVID-19? Was it before everything shut down? Yes, it was. I can't give you an exact date, but I do believe some alerts were coming out in January and February that there was um, something coming down the line that we didn't have a whole lot of information about at the time. I mean, we saw the videos that everybody else saw on the TV where people were suited up Mm -hmm. in hazmat suits, 
trying to take care of patients. We saw hospitals, whole hospitals being built by the Chinese government. That was probably the biggest clue that something big was going on. When you're building a hospital within a two to three week time frame, and the size that they were building it in, or the, the size that it was. <clears throat> so that was an alert that made us perk up our interests, or certainly perked my interest up as to what's going on. What did, if anything, what did, did you all start to prepare then for what might be coming to America and to Cincinnati? Yes. I think our hospital was pretty upfront and on the ball about how they were going to be setting things up if this virus was going to get to the out of the control out of control like it had in China. They started looking at PPE. The biggest issue were N95s. I think that they realized that our supply was low and that getting a supply quickly when everybody else wanted to get the supply, that was going to be a problem. Do I think that that <clears throat> influenced the CDC's decision? And our hospital's decision on how we were going to uh, function with this respiratory illness, I absolutely do. It's when we went to a droplet protocol with a shield to cover our mask so that we could conserve it and reuse it. And in the first time in my nursing career, we were being asked to reuse PPE. Oh. And that's not always safe because you can't always wash that, can you? So a lot of nurses would opt to use an N95 under their surgical mask. So the surgical mask and then your shield on top of that. So you are were given some protection, especially with the surgical mask covering your N95. We actually had cleaning stations set up in our hallway so that when we came out of a patient's room who was infected with COVID, we would actually stop at the cleaning station and clean our shield, doff our gloves. If we were between patients, we could put our mask, our N95 in a paper bag. And we had a tally. We could use our N95 five times. And then that would actually get recycled with a special cleaning procedure that they did. It was kind of scary at first, especially since we were doing contact precautions as well as the droplet precautions. And then we would use airborne precautions for when we were doing anything with a patient's airway that would create aerosolization or the dispersal mm -hmm. of their secretions and breath. We would spend very little time, as little time in their room as we possibly could, and we would minimize contact with them. And that could mean that they would only get a nurse entering their room every four hours mm -hmm. on the floor. Of course, in the critical care units, there they would have a different scenario right. there. So you can only imagine how lonely, how worried, how frightened our patients were during those times. Here they are when nurses enter their room. The only thing they can see are the nurse's eyes uh -huh. through a shield. And you had to be able to communicate compassion and concern just by, by how you observed them, how you spoke to them, and 
whether your eyes were smiling or not smiling. You know, they had no family contact at all. I, I just don't know how they felt during that time. Um, as a person who is very sick, who know they have a virus that they don't know if they're going to live or die after coming out from there. Um, and we certainly didn't know all the sequelae or all the after effects of this virus after a person has recovered from it. It doesn't just stop after they leave the hospital. So it's, it's surprising to me that um, as many nurses stayed to look after these folks that did, because even the nursing staff, you know, we're in a wide range of ages. We have our own comorbidities or our own uh, diagnoses that might make it unsafe for us if we were to catch this virus. It could mean our death as well. And and I don't know that they even know the true number of nurses that have yeah. died during this pandemic because they were looking after patients within facilities that didn't necessarily have the proper PPE or were applying the PPE properly. One thing that I kind of have always wanted to ask is, obviously I come from the media and we see video of what's going on in these hospitals. Obviously faces are blurred, but we see these nurses being, you know, head to toe in PPE. We see these patients, you know, who are intubated and we see this, these harrowing and horrific scenes in hospitals that, you know, no one should have to see. And that's one thing for us to think as people who are watching from the outside. How did nurses and people on the front lines take care of themselves from a mental standpoint, from not getting too sad or too upset that this is going on? How did, how did, how did they take care of their mental health? I think working on a unit with people that you have been working with had developed a rapport with, had developed a sense of teamwork with, that probably was the greatest support that there could have been. If you're coming to a place that doesn't have that, doesn't have the support, um, you don't feel the teamwork, that everybody's working together for the same end, that we're here to take care of patients and to make them well, I don't know how they would have been able to cope mentally and emotionally. Was there increased alcohol consumption? On my part, I would say I probably went from maybe one to two beer a week to maybe three to four beer a week. Others, could they have had a, a greater alcohol problem or seeking other venues to cope? It's quite possible, and it's probably probable. I don't know that the data is out there. Time will tell on those issues. Are we still having issues, or are we still having problems? I would have to say yes. Just because it has been going on for over a year now, and we're still dealing with it. One of our, our biggest issues we have is by those who minimize this disease, who don't think it's as serious as it is, who, because they might not be in that category of, well, I've got, I don't have, you know, I don't have diabetes, I don't have heart problems, I'm not obese, so therefore it's not going to affect me like it has those particular group of people. 
and or I'm not old. <laughs> we found that very discouraging, that they didn't take it seriously when all these issues were coming about with those particular disorders and age groups. Mm -hmm. um, a life is a life, and it's important to protect the life, lives that you can protect. And you're exactly right. I think a lot of people throughout this pandemic were thinking about them and thinking about, well, I don't have this, this, and that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to get, if I get, I'm not going to get sick or I'm not going to die or whatever. Well, first of all, there's two things wrong with that. First of all, people my age, perfectly healthy 28 year olds died from this, from this virus are still dying from this virus. Because yes. as, as you said, it's not over either. It it's more probably, I think it's fair to say on the back end because of vaccines and all that. But people who are perfectly healthy, young, um, no no issues or die from this. And that's what people didn't understand is, yeah, it, while it affect, statistically affected people, older people, co-morbidities, all that affected those more. It's, it wasn't, I, was, I wasn't safe from it. Let's say that. Um, and the second thing is people don't understand that just because you might not get sick doesn't mean you might infect someone who might get sick. Correct. And that's where I think we as in America had a big issue about this, more so than a lot of other countries did too. But one thing that COVID really did, it was a political issue for a year. People saying, well, we're not going to wear masks. We're not going to get the vaccine. This is the government telling us what to do. No, the government is trying to keep us alive. Um, so, I mean, that's just my rant on that. But when you see this virus on the front lines affecting people of all ages, all comorbidities, all um, races, all sexes, what is that like? Knowing that this is a foreign virus that came here a year ago, and all of a sudden it's basically what wiping out almost a healthcare system. First of all, let me ask this. Did, was the healthcare system ever overwhelmed, like at the peak of the pandemic? Because we heard a lot in the beginning about flattening the curve. We needed to wear masks. We needed to not go out. We needed a social distance to flatten the curve. We did that for a couple months. And then I feel like there's a one point where it just shot right up. What was that like at the peak of the pandemic in on the COVID unit? So I think that uh, Cincinnati was fortunate in that we did not see the surge that other areas saw. When you're telling people to wait outside in their cars before they can come into an emergency department, that's an indication that things are not good, especially when it's known that their oxygen saturation is low while sitting in the car. They had to wait their turn. I wasn't in the emergency room at the time. I can only imagine that they would have been in their PPE a lot more than I was on the COVID unit, even though I was in PPE, you know, between patients and stuff. At least in, in my setting, I only had a maximum of so many patients. In the emergency room, that number is continuously cycling. I can tell you that spending 20 to 25 minutes in my PPE, once I would doff that PPE, there was actually sweat in my gloves, pooling where my fingertips were. Your shield, 
would fog up. You're there trying to start an IV with a fogged up shield. That was frustrating. And then when I did look at my hands with the removal of the PPE from the gloves, it looked like I had been washing dishes for 30 minutes. That's how wrinkly my fingers were. And I was surprised I could actually get into the medication cabinet because we have to use our biometric and at least my fingerprint was still recognizable to take out medicines from the cabinet. It was exhausting. And thankfully, thankfully now, uh, we have very few positive tests coming back at this time. Now what we're dealing with is post-COVID issues. And that can range from cognitive functioning, how you think and respond to things, heart problems, kidney problems. There are still issues that we are dealing with with this virus, but now at least we don't have the infection rate that we used to have. Are a lot of these post-COVID issues that hospitals are seeing now due to the fact that because of COVID, they felt like they shouldn't go to the hospital. So things are being undiagnosed. Things are are people are just not going to the hospital to get their tests. They're, you know, like their colonoscopies or their this, this, and that. Are you, are you seeing a lot of those residual effects of people missing out on those for the past year? So that's a, that's a very good question. And it's difficult to answer that question. We did find out, we did discover that people weren't coming to the hospital for stroke-like symptoms in the volume that they had been in the previous year. People also weren't coming in with chest pain symptoms like they had been in the previous year. And they actually put out like a, a kind of a public information session. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have these symptoms, don't hesitate. Come to the hospital to be evaluated. Um, and so I don't have that data for you, like how many have suffered from a stroke that Had they come to the hospital sooner, they could have had a special blood clotting medicine or clot buster medicine, Mm -hmm. as we say, in order to uh, reverse signs and symptoms of stroke. I don't have those numbers for you. People were not not having heart attacks last year. They just weren't coming to the hospital because of it, though. Correct. They might have felt like, oh, I can handle this. It's just a little bit of pain. And then learn and then live with it. Mm -hmm. So whether those numbers are mixed in with the actual effects of the virus on the heart muscle versus someone not paying attention or not getting attention for their symptoms, it's, it's difficult to say which one of those scenarios was the actual picture. When you look at the last year of COVID here in Cincinnati, and watching the news and seeing it everywhere else around the world. Has this been one of the most trying times in your nursing career or maybe the most trying time in your nursing career? I think the most difficult part was the not knowing Mm -hmm. part. I really can't say that it was the most trying time in my nursing career because I did spend 15 years in the emergency department at UCMC. And there were definite times in the emergency department where it was trying, where your total and complete focus is on what is the priority here? Who needs to be seen first and who can wait? What needs to be done first and what can wait? Um, 
So perhaps that trained me up in the resilience and the perseverance and in just that kind of like the triage ability of prioritizing what needs to be done first, what's the most important thing and what is the least important thing. I think I've been trained up over the years of my nursing career. That question might be very important to ask someone perhaps with less nursing experience. I was just about to ask you, do you think this pandemic would have looked different to you as a nurse on the front lines? Have you had you been 22 right out of college as opposed to being an experienced nurse? Absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, I'm not 22 now. <laughs> you don't look a day over 23, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really, you know, I can't speak to how right. they felt. Certainly there were a lot of older nurses that decided, okay, well, maybe this is the time to retire. Um, and perhaps the younger nurses decided, oh, I don't want to work on a COVID unit. I don't want to be there. I, I'd prefer to work somewhere where I'll have less risk of coming in contact with this virus. Um, so that's, again, that's difficult to speak on. Now, you and I have talked about this before. Um, before the pandemic, there was already a shortage of nurses, not just at UC, but I assume at a lot of other healthcare systems um, across the country. Has that been exacerbated? Has that increased um, a lot since the pandemic? Are, are nurses leaving because of the effects of the pan that the pandemic had on them, like saying that I can't do this? Another good question, Alex, which I wish I could answer for you. Um, I'm sure there's probably some data out there to yeah. review on that. What we have actually seen are less nurses coming out of school. So that is an actual fact yeah. that is happening right now. Less nurses have graduated in this last year. So nurses at UCMC are currently in negotiations for a new contract coming up in the next few weeks. Um, the current contract, I believe, expires June 30th, um, if I did my research correctly. <laughs> what effect ha will the pandemic have on those negotiations, if any? So what we saw during the pandemic was a much greater utilization of agency and travelers to supplement the shortage that we have at our hospital. The other part that we have seen is that a lot of our regular nursing staff went out to do travel and agency jobs. And so the hospital has, you know, we have staff leaving and then they are recruiting and wanting travel and agency nurses come in. They come at a much higher premium than regular staff. And so we strongly feel that if the facility is able to support the number of agency staff that they're able to pay for at this point, that in order to retain, recruit, and attract, really attract nurses to come to our facility to work, we are a level one facility, level one trauma care. We do surgeries that no other people do in the area. We are top notch in so many areas. The hospital needs to be aware that they're gonna be competing with traveler type pay. And that's not, we're not asking for that. 
We're just asking to be put at a level where other nurses in the area are like, oh, look at UC, look what they're offering their staff. I really like that. I think I would want to go there and work because of their competitiveness. It's going to be a a difficult time because I think it's a huge ask. Um, Our contract lasts for three years. Notoriously, we have have been very good. The hospital's been very good about providing a good increase initially. And then it kind of wanes in year two and three. So that by the time you come back around to the first year of the next contract, you're like way behind again. And so we want, we have a package that we feel we've put together that is all inclusive, that would behoove the facility to at least take a serious look at and talk with us about it see where we think that we need to be. I want to go to mandates and the government mandates that have been put in place the past year. On June 2nd, Mike DeWine, Governor Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, uh, where we are, uh, (laughs) lifted all um, health mandates concerning the pandemic. So no mask mandate, no social distancing mandates. Businesses don't have to require masks in stores, a bunch of other stuff. Um, from a purely medical um, perspective, was that the right call or is it too early? Now, remember, I do believe that's for vaccinated people. Yes, for fully vaccinated people. Yes, correct. So the vaccine has been proven to be very effective. Now that you know he's lifted all those things, you don't know who you're walking next to if they're vaccinated or not. Exactly. And so therein lies the dilemma. And so that's why they recommend even those who are vaccinated, if they're in close quarters with um, a large group of people, they still recommend to wear a mask, or at least that's how we feel. Now, when I go outside or go anywhere, it's like my first instinct is, where's my mask? Yeah. Um, I was just at the mall today and I was like, (laughs) where's my mask? Should I put it on? I am vaccinated. But like you said, you don't know who you're going to be walking next to. Yes. And, you know, the vaccine is only 95% effective, which is high for a vaccine, but there's still that 5%. And even though I may not get sick from it, it goes back to you can always infect somebody else despite you being fully vaccinated. So I find that there's a lot of, I call it mask anxiety. Like <laughs> I'm fully vaccinated, but I get anxious when I don't have one now. I think, and I think, do you think that's something we're going to see for a while in the coming weeks, in the coming months, people... Even though they can take their mask off, they're not going to. Yes, (laughs) definitely. Um, It just like even last night, my husband and I went out to dinner and it just kind of looked weird where the staff weren't wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Nobody was wearing masks in the facility. And even as I'm walking to our table, even though there's still kind of like some distancing going on there, it's still just kind of I felt out of place without my mask on. Right. Um, and I like that mask anxiety. That's a, <laughs> that's a great catchphrase. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, you, I, again, I went to the mall, I went to Eastgate mall, which I had not been to in forever, but I went in there and it was about half and half people. There were about half people wearing masks, half not, maybe a little less than half uh, wearing masks. So I did kind of feel out of place, out of place, but like you said, the biggest shock for me is seeing employees not wearing masks, uh, store clerks, um, 
you know, Heather and I went to a restaurant recently and they weren't wearing masks. So was, that's still going to take some getting used to for me. Yes. Yes. I will recommend that people wear masks in the fall season when flu is mm-hmm. expected to hit. Because last year with this pandemic and people wearing masks, we hardly saw any flu. So I think I would recommend coming up this season mm-hmm. to wear a mask just prevent to prevent getting the flu. Actually, Heather and I were talking about this yesterday. And we, were, we kind of talked about, um, you know, flu and just common colds. A lot of us didn't have those these past year because we were always wearing a mask. And this is a medical question. Um, because we have not had those and our immune system has not had to fight those, when we first get when we get our first flu or our first cold, are they just gonna hit us harder than normal? Um, another very good question, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Thank you. I used to get paid to do that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a very real concern um, about this year's flu season that we were not exposed to very we were exposed to very little flu last season, and so yes, that immunity is not there. Will the flu vaccine this year be effective? Because um, we're always playing catch up here in the Western Hemisphere. It'll be an interesting season to see what happens. So that's why I recommend people wear their mask <laughs> during this year's flu season. I may just wear it for the rest of my life at this point. <laughs> um, what, do you, what would you say to someone who may still be on the fence about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. We real I the only symptoms that I had with the COVID vaccine was arm soreness and the second shot maybe like a little extra soreness and swelling. Which one did you get again? You got I received the Pfizer, Pfizer. vaccine. Yeah, that, I received Pfizer as well and those were a lot of my or uh, arm soreness the first time. That was basically it. And then the second time I was just I I had body aches. Uh, I felt like I got hit by a bus, but it didn't last that long. It lasted maybe a day and then I was fine. Yes. I think it's important for people to look at what the vaccine, like how it actually works. You know, it all has to do with the spike protein on the coronavirus of the COVID-19. So it's very specific. It's very geared toward how that virus infects people. And I think that the numbers that we're seeing with its efficacy are beyond what their expectations were and are beyond what any other real vaccine has given us. So I would encourage people to become vaccinated with it because if you're not and variants continue to develop, uh, variants that could become uh, more lethal, we already know that you know the variant that has come out of Britain and out of India are uh, more transmissible, so more people will get that quicker. And South, I think there's one from South Africa. South Africa well. too, but I think the British one and the uh, one from India are of greater concern. I know there is even one out of Brazil too. Um, so there you have it. The world is not at the same level of vaccination as we are at the U.S. So those countries are going to continue to have those variants, wherein in the U.S., if you have not been vaccinated, you could potentially be exposed to those. And the vaccines that we have been given here in the U.S. 
have been shown to be effective even against those other mm -hmm. variants. So the hope is, and the likelihood is, is that whatever other variants that might develop would also be um, covered by the vaccines that we have given to the American population so far. Now, I know you and dad have already gone on a vacation, um, I think over the last month or whatever. What are you, and I know that's something you guys like to do, but you guys were not able to do that a lot this past year, or as much as you guys have in the past. Yes, we had to cancel two vacations. <laughs> two vacations, oh, Alex. Oh, no. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> what are you most looking forward to um, post-COVID? Well, we were just recently in Memphis, and it was a a pleasure just to be out on the streets with other people, listening to live music. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that, that we were encouraged by. We were still wearing our masks, even though we're both fully vaccinated. We still, you know, felt like in those crowds that we still required some protection. Um, just being with groups of people again was enlightening and was just encouraging. We love being out in crowds, you know, watching baseball games. Mm -hmm. and we love doing those types of events and it's coming back and it's wonderful to see. Now, last question. Uh, you and dad have not RSVP for the wedding. Are you guys coming? <laughs> yes, Alex. I was able to find a relief to work for me on your special day. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, Pat, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was really a treat to have you. And I, again, along with my mom, um, I want to thank you and her for being on the front lines of the pandemic and for everything that you have done the past year. I know it wasn't easy. Um, and I, I, I just thank the world of you, of you both and, and my dad as well, uh, for being a police officer on the front line. And I, I always tell people our family is weird cause we're like weirdly close. <laughs> um, you know, we, I, my best friend, my best friends are my family and, um, I, I love you and I thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Alex. It has been a pleasure speaking with you in this forum. We've never done this no, before. And you are a very good interrogator. Thank you. <laughs> I, should, I should either be a journalist or a detective, one of the two. <laughs> I thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you. And we will be right back with the mailbag segment, answering your questions that you ask me. And we'll be back. podcast it is now time for the mailbag segment of the podcast this is where you can ask me any question on politics sports 
horticulture, world capitals, pretty much anything. And we did not get a lot of submissions this week, but we will get to the ones that we did get. Um, The first one is from my friend Joe, who submits questions every week. Thank you, Joe. He is the first one to take me up on the topic of horticulture. Um, He says, on the topic of horticulture, what type of garden do you like to grow? Do you grow food in your garden? Is it more for show and pleasure? Do you grow flowers to cut and show off? I do not have a garden yet, but when I move to Middletown here in the summer, um, the plan is to have a garden probably starting next year. Um, I don't know what I'm going to grow yet. I would love to grow some vegetables, some tomatoes, um, just a bunch of different things and grow my own food. That's kind of always what I wanted to do, kind of explore that. And who knows what else I might grow in my garden, but that's the plan. Um, it is more for food than it is for show. And that'll be fun, um, depending on what Heather allows me to do. <laughs> but we'll see. She'll uh, She actually gives me a lot of liberty with the yard because I like to be out in the yard. I like to garden. I like to do a bunch of things um, outside. So Joe also asked, what was your favorite all-time vacation? This is a tough one. Well, I have a couple. I think almost any trip to New York City. That is my favorite place to travel to. I love going to Broadway. I love going to baseball games. I've been to both a Mets and a Yankees game there. And it's just a really fun, vibrant city. And the reason I say a couple is because it's a couple of New York cities that I'm talking about. Um, There was one that I went to back in 2013 with my dad when we went to a taping of David Letterman. And then we went to the Big East Tournament in Madison Square Garden and then the Atlantic 10 Tournament at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And so that was a really fun trip. And then I took one in 2018 with my friend Robert Weidel, (laughs) was the first guest on the Clayton Castle podcast. We went and we saw a couple shows on Broadway. We saw, as he mentioned, Come From Away. We also saw SpongeBob. And I went to a Yankees game while he saw another Broadway show. We also saw a taping of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Because I'm a, as you can tell, I'm a huge, you know, late night fan of Colbert, of Letterman, to an extent, Fallon. I'm a huge fan of Corden. I was a huge fan of um, Craig Ferguson back when he had the time slot after Letterman. Yeah, those are my all-time favorite vacations, and that is it for the mailbag segment. Uh, just a reminder, you can submit mailbag questions. I usually put out the the solicitation, uh, um, usually the Friday before the next podcast drop, and I'll record that usually on Monday, although today I'm recording on Tuesday. So um, so yeah, so be feel free to like and follow the Facebook page, the Clayton Castle Podcast, Again, we are now also on Spotify and SoundCloud, so you can get the podcast that way. Click follow or subscribe or whatever it is um, on those, and we will see you in the future. The next episode, I'm really excited for this next guest. This is someone who I have great friendship with, and I'm not going to reveal who it is now, but I will just say it will be a reunion of sorts um, for those who follow my you know, journalism career and my shenanigans that I get in. Look out for that. That'll be dropping in two weeks. That is the end of the Clayton Castle podcast episode four. I thank you for joining me and I will see you around.